And what a joy to worship Jesus together in song. Let's do that now in Scripture. Please turn with me to John 18. John 18. The study today will be actually John 19, 1 through 16. But just trust me, let's start off in 18. We find ourselves in the middle of a story. It's a narrative. Um, sorry if it's your first Sunday here, but this is a part two. That's why I'm in 18. I'll do my best to bring you up to speed. If I were to give the, the narrative, the story, a title, it would be The Inquisition of the King. We looked at the first part of that two Sundays ago, beginning in verse 28 and extending to verse 40. There's one verse in particular that I would uh, bring to your attention again to uh, catch you up on what's happening. And then we're going we're gonna to work our way through the actual text. I will not read John 19 to you ahead of time. Again, I just deem it wise for us to work our way through it gradually. But here's what you need to know so far. Chapter 18. Verses 31 and 32. Pilate said to them, that's the Jews, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? We don't even think about it very long because it just the brain can't handle it. It's a fascinating prospect, though. I think it's why we find ourselves gravitating toward heated sporting events. I think of like Ali Frazier back in the day, like two undefeated, like masses of just strengthened humanity battling it out something that still is looked back to as a reference point in the sporting world today. We, we're even interested now in undefeated teams and their legacies and their dynasties and what happens when these two things clash. But they don't seem unstoppable, immovable. They all have like their own Achilles heel, their weak point. At the end of the day, when human powers clash, one prevails, the other loses. The closest that you'll ever get 
to seeing an unstoppable force and an immovable object colliding on a human level is in the text we're going to read today. You've ever read the introduction to a Greek play, you find these words, uh, the dramatis persona. They will list ahead of time the main figures that will be interacting with one another in the play. Here, there are two dramatis persona on the human level alone. In the one corner, we have Pilate. He represents the actual power of Rome itself. The country that had come to dominate the world, overthrowing uh, the Greek Empire. There was no place, they say, in which the sun did not touch. The, the influence was huge. They were known, Greeks were known for their culture and their art. Rome was known for their war. They could impose the will, their will on another. Pilate is the human representative of this in this particular interaction. And what we've seen up to this point, like the hints that we've been given in the narrative, is that Pilate actually doesn't want to see Jesus crucified. Because to him, Jesus is not a threat. In fact, Pilate is a little anti-Semitic, like many Romans were. And what he wants more than not seeing Jesus crucified is just to annoy perpetually the Jewish leaders and rulers. So he's powerful, he's strong, he is, in this case, trying to settle in as like an immovable object. Like he's just pretty settled, as we'll see, that Jesus should not be crucified. And you think if anybody's got the power to do that, it's him. But then in the other corner, you've got the, the Jewish leaders represented by Caiaphas. And man, they are persistent. They are a force to be reckoned with. They're like this, this network of fire ants that can just mobilize and cause a lot of damage. In fact, they have been able on select times to execute whoever they wanted to, even though legally they had no power to do so. In fact, their power had increased in recent days over Pilate because Pilate was such a terrible governor that they had been able to petition Rome several times to say, you need to remove this guy, he's causing civil unrest, and Rome doesn't want civil unrest. So they actually are beginning to develop a little bit of, a, of an advantage over Pilate, it seems. And there's this clash of the wills. You've got Pilate, who doesn't want to see Jesus crucified, and he wants to annoy the Jews. And now you've got the Jews, who do want to see Jesus crucified. But let me tell you one more thing about them. This is their catch-22. They don't want him to be crucified as a king. They don't want to acknowledge publicly his kingship. They hate the idea of this Jesus being a king. So they've been like trying to figure out how can we get this guy convicted without ever giving hint to the people that he really is a king. And you noticed that in the text last week. When Pilate says, what's the charge? All they say back is, um, well, I mean, it's bad. 
If he wasn't a bad guy, we wouldn't have given him to you. You notice, they don't say at first that he's a king. They don't want to say that. So the impossible wrestling, wrestling match ensues. And what you're going to notice in the text today is that the person who seems to have like the most power in this particular instance, like he's probably, he might even get his way. Three different times, three, he is going to assert his prerogative as the representative of Rome to stop the crucifixion of Jesus. And three times it'll be challenged. This is how the story plays out. This is how you've got to follow this. And let let me just help you ahead of time. This is a story. Hang with it. The story is about how the struggle of Pilate against the insistence of the Jews produces the plan of God to present Jesus as the king. This story is about how the struggle of Pilate against the insistence of the Jews produces the announcement formally to the world that Jesus is the king. Now, the struggle goes on with like three different attempts of, of Pilate to uh, you know, assert his will. It actually begins, not in verse not, uh, chapter 19, but look at the end of chapter 18 again. Uh, 38, second half of the verse And he, Pilate, said, um, and after he had said this, he went outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. All right, so here's his first attempt. He's coming out and he's saying, there's not even a charge. I don't have anything to charge him with. But he's going to try to get out of it. He's going to try to tell them, like, hey, I know that some of you want him dead. Let's just do this. Let's let everybody win. You know how once a year I give one of your prisoners the, the get-out-of-jail-free card. Like, let's give him the get-out-of-jail-free card. Everybody good with that? Like, you get to recognize that he's a prisoner of some kind. He got put in jail, but he gets out of jail. Pilate is trying to manage the crowd here because they're insisting that Jesus be uh, arrested and sentenced. So he presents the option. Notice this. He says, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? All right, great solution. You get what you want. He's acknowledged as a criminal, but he gets back out. I get what I want because I don't see any guilt in him. They, They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was, the text says robber, but we pointed out that Barabbas is a terrorist. That's what the translational note means. He was an insurrectionist. They want the insurrectionist. So strike one. That's the first failure to clear Jesus by the most powerful man uh, in Jerusalem. But Pilate's not done. He's, he's, the, he's got imperium. He's got the power of Rome. Let him try again. So let's Let's get to our text today. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Now I want to pause because... Some questions should be floating in your mind right now. If Pilate thinks that Jesus is innocent, why then does he flog him? 
You're going to see in verses 4 and following that Pilate is actually trying to appeal to the sympathy of the Jews. He really doesn't want this man to be crucified. So what he decides to do is to execute his prerogative as the Roman governor, basically to beat Jesus up, to roughen him up a little bit, present him before the crowd, and then say, all right, do you really want this guy to have to die? I mean, like, is he really that great of a threat? That's, that's where he's headed. Now, the, the two confusing points for you is most of us who know the crucifixion story are like, and because of preachers like myself, who have a penchant for the dramatic, admittedly, you're like, oh, I know, I know this part. This is when he tells about the, like, the cat of nine tails and it rips you know, skin and you can see organs and all that. That's actually not what's going down here. There were two beatings of Jesus when you harmonize the gospel accounts. Rome had three levels of this type of punishment. I won't tell you the Latin names because I can't pronounce them. We'll just go with moderate, severe, extreme. Level one, two, and three. The level one beating was simply like rough, like truly, like taking like small sticks, rods, or somebody's hand and punching a guy, just beating him up. It was the proverbial, though painful, slap on the wrist and letting him go. There was a level two that was to be debilitating, permanently debilitating. Level three was to cause death. Jesus will receive a level three flogging that is mentioned in the other gospel accounts but that only happens after his condemnation, after the sentence is pronounced. Right now, just hang, this is important to the story, the sentence hasn't been pronounced. But Pilate is not executing like, any type of vindication here. He's not actually trying to say, hey, he really is bad, let's beat him up. He is actually trying to save Jesus by beating him up and then playing on the sympathy of the crowd, like maybe they might change their mind and choose Jesus over Barabbas. He's scared of the crowd. He can't have any insurrection. He's got two strikes against him with Rome. Like he, he doesn't want this to happen. But as you could imagine, once Pilate turns Jesus over to the soldiers while he's inside this praetorium, this palace, as hardened soldiers tend to do, they had fun with it. They had already heard the words floating around that there was some concern that this guy may be a king, and as true fans of the Roman Empire, they were going to show this guy what kind of a king he really was. And so they decide to mock him. They decide to truly not just beat him up physically, but beat him up psychologically. The text actually emphasizes the latter. Here Jesus is, already bloodied from the prayer before and bloodied from being beaten in the face by the Jewish authorities. Like, I mean, he already looks like a pitiful sight. They take the branches of most likely a palm date, which could have thorns anywhere from 6 to 12 inches long, and they gingerly make that into a crown of thorns, and they press it down on his head and says, all right, we're going to crown the king. It's his coronation. And then one of them takes off their, their red, purplish robe, and they put it over his shoulders instead. And then the whole scene is that of actual mockery where they, he's bound, they actually come up to him and say, Hail, king of the Jews! And then instead of kissing him on the cheek, they punch him in the face. I can see this. We have so many s stories 
of brutality among soldiers, war-hardened men who want to let out their rage. And so Pilate just says, all right, guys, level one flogging, do what you need to do. We're going to roughen them up some. And he's overseeing this. But ultimately, in the irony of this whole thing, Jesus here is actually being celebrated as a king in the weirdest of ways. It kind of makes you wonder, could God really be in charge of this? I mean, is, this, is there something bigger going on, or is this just some type of cosmic accident, like the, the king plan of Jesus just went off the rails and it fell off into a ditch somewhere? Remember, Pilate's trying to appeal to their sympathies. Look at verse 4. Notice this. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Now, catch the, the scene. There's an inside and an outside. Pilate keeps going inside, outside, inside, outside. Do you remember why he has to do that? Because the Jews would not go into the praetorium because they didn't want to be defiled for Passover week. So they're standing out in the street. Jesus gets this beating on the inside. They can't see it. He wants to surprise them. He's hoping to satisfy their bloodlust. Like, okay, if I rough them up, like, and then I take them out, so I want you guys to look at that. I want you to look at this guy that you say is a threat, this guy who's such a troublemaker, and see if you still want to have him killed then. So Pilate went out, see, I'm bringing him out to you. He's, he's saying, all right, he's about to come out. All right, guys, bring him out. And verse 5, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, behold, the man. Here's your great threat. Here's the guy that y'all think is causing so much trouble. Here's the one that you've rumored that he might be some kind of a king. Look at him with his crown. Look at him with his shawl. Look at him with his bloodied face. I want you to see the man. Does he look that threatening to you? Does he look like the kind of person that we would need to crucify as an enemy of the state of Rome? So this is attempt two by Pilate. Maybe this would satisfy them. And it's almost like blood in the water for a shark. This just like fuels their frenzy, and they cry out for the first time in the narrative, crucify him, crucify him. Now, I will next week explain more of how the word crucifixion is such a terrible word in their mind, and I know it's been explained to you before, but I want you to know that things have escalated with the Jews. At first, they just want them dead, and Jewish people don't crucify. Crucifixion was so heinous that it was eventually banned by the Romans themselves. They banned it. The Jews certainly would have never crucified anybody. You know what their method of execution was? Stoning. But now, they, their hatred for Jesus has been stirred to such a degree that they don't just want life in prison. They don't just want stoning. They don't just want beheading. They want a crucifixion. Like, Pilate here is truly stunned because he's thinking, why, I beat him up. He's not a threat. I mean, look at him. He's this pitiful king. And they just go off. And in fact, they're so upset that they can tell that Pilate is not buying into their plan to see him crucified. 
And so they actually are crying out for his crucifixion. And he says back to them in frustration, look at the second half of verse 6. Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Like he's exasperated. Here he is. His second attempt has failed. Like, I don't want to crucify this guy. You do it. And he knows they can't. They can't legally do that. But then the Jews come back to him and say, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Now, this is new. This is new. They haven't said this yet. So far, they've only hinted that he's a really bad guy and you've got to kill him. They didn't want to say that it was a Jewish thing because they didn't think that Pilate would actually prosecute that. Like, why would he give a rip about their Jewish laws? And so, in the heat of the moment, they show their hand, and they say, what we're ultimately concerned about here is this guy has made himself to be the Son of God. And the Greek is trickier than it first seems. Our translations say things like this. He made himself out to be the Son of God. He made himself seem to be the Son of God. You know what it literally says in the original? He made himself the Son of God. That's what Pilate hears. This guy became a god? I mean, at this point, Pilate is not concerned anymore about Jewish law, although he does have some like modicum of responsibility to enforce high-level Jewish laws. This one is not one that would resonate with him. But it shows something about his psyche here. Notice what goes on. You get some, some input into his own mind. Pilate has failed again, and this has caused him great consternation. Look at verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So this represents step three. The first time Pilate tries to clear him with the Barabbas trick, it doesn't work. The second time he tries to clear Jesus with the beating him up trick, it doesn't work. And now he finds himself back with Jesus again, trying to figure out, okay, does he really need to die or not? And guess what? Pilate will again determine that he doesn't need to die, but he needs some clarification first, because they just dropped something on a superstitious Roman that like would have bothered him for the rest of his life. And that is that this guy is some kind of a deity. <laughs> I know that uh, the Romans could be rather hardened and agnostic, but all of them were brought up on uh, those Greco-Roman stories of the gods and their children. They're called demigods. When you talk about a son of a god, we're talking about someone that's a half-god I mean, the demigods that would have likely come to, to Pilate's mind as soon as he thought, like, oh no, I just scourged a demigod, <laughs> would have been like popular names like Hercules. I mean, uh, the guy who destroys like undestroyable creatures, nine-headed monsters, lions with impervious skin. I mean, like, that's, that's what comes to his mind about demigod or or nemesis some actually uh, roman accounts say that nemesis wasn't just a goddess but she was like the child of a human mother and that she was the one who exacted retribution on people particularly for pride the pilot's like oh no i may have whipped a god he goes back into Jesus. He's even more afraid. 
And he asked him three questions. The first one is this, where are you from? Where are you from? Which for us as Westerners, we're like, who cares where you're from? Doesn't matter. In the ancient Near East, that's how you determined what somebody was. Like their origin was the most defining thing about them. I mean, just think of like the way that people would introduce themselves. Hey, I'm Joseph of Arimathea. Or Paul says, when he's in an official legal setting, I'm Paul of Tarsus, of Sicilia. Like your roots, your home, they meant something. I mean, Pilate here goes straight to the where are you from question because he's like, okay, if you're from some kind of like netherworld, I've got problems. And notice what Jesus does or what he doesn't do. He doesn't say a thing. Jesus isn't trying to defend himself. Jesus isn't trying to stop the crucifixion. The only person that's trying to stop this is Pilate. He's not going to answer that question. And by the way, could he have even answered that question to any satisfaction for Pilate? Like to say, all right, yes, I'm the son of God. As to someone who thinks of Greco-Roman pagan deities, Pilate would have never known. But Jesus didn't know him in explanation because he's not trying to stop it. And you know what it reminds me of? It's the passage that we just read a little earlier in Isaiah chapter 53, where it was prophesied that the Jewish Messiah would come and that he would suffer silently. As like a lamb to the shearers is silent. He will not fight. He will not resist. He will just go straight to the cross. Indeed, Jesus does speak at moments. He'll do it in just a few, but he never speaks in his own defense. He's just sitting there taking it. And so Pilate says, where are you from? Jesus doesn't answer. And this makes Pilate, who's already scared, even more angry. And he says in verse 10, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? I mean, you can just hear it. The emphasis is matched in the original language. It's like, you're not speaking to me? Do you know who you're not talking to? Pilate actually uses three personal pronouns in two sentences. You're not speaking to me, and then twice he says, do you not know that I have the authority to release you, and I have the authority to crucify you? Like Pilate sees himself as the unstoppable force. He's got the backing of Rome. The crucifixion of Jesus in Pilate's mind is totally up to him. And notice, this is the only place in this passage where Jesus speaks before his crucifixion. This is what he answers in verse 11. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Whoa. Jesus tells Pilate that he has no authority over him except what is given him from above. All right, friends, I need your minds to hurt for a second. Do you you get what's going down here? Jesus is actually saying, like it's in red in my Bible, he's speaking out loud and saying, You think that this is about the Jews doing something or about you doing something. God is working over all you guys doing something as you sin against me. Notice, 
He, tells, he, he gives Pilate a little bit of a break. He says, they have the greater sin, or he has the greater sin, talking about Caiaphas, who's representing the people. He's the one that delivered him over. Because they've been more active in this process. You've been more passive in this process. But guess what? You've both sinned. And by the way, wherever the little rumor has been floating around that all sins are the same, it's not true. All sins will condemn you to hell. But in the mind of our Lord and Jesus, some sins are greater than other sins. And in this case, the sin of actively conniving and conspiring to crucify the Lord of glory is of more consequence to God than Pilate, who just, it seems, happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But we know that not even that was an accident. God is in control of every bit of this thing. The real unstoppable force here isn't Pilate. The real immovable object is not the Jews. There's something greater. In fact, when you hear Peter's preaching on this topic in the book of Acts, it will blow your mind. He is speaking to the Jews in particular, and he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you catch that? God delivered him up sovereignly, but you were the ones who crucified him how do we make that work in our little peon minds? Who crucified Jesus? Two things are affirmed here, friends, and let's take a theology break. There is divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and the text speaks to both. The, the fancy term for this in the, the theological circles is concurrence. Concurrence. Two things happening at the same time, or uh, some prefer the term compatibilism, like these two things are, are happening at, at the same time. It's, it's fascinating to me that, that what we have here is a clear picture of divine sovereignty. I mean, this is God's plan. That's what Isaiah 53 was all about, right? Isn't it interesting that in Isaiah 6, it says that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and you don't see the word lifted up again until Isaiah 53. The lifting up of the Lord of glory in human form would be in the crucifixion itself. Let me think about this from one more angle. Remember when Jesus like, tur turns the water into wine at Cana? And they said um, that the mother is like, oh, are you going to like, you know, is now your time to like shine? And he says, my hour is not yet come. And you're reading through the book of John, and you're like, hey, when's his hour? When's he going to shine? When's he going to step up to the plate? And all we hear from Jesus is, hey, I will be glorified when I'm lifted up. And you're like, hey, I wonder what that means. And then in John 10, he says it again. I will be, my hour has come, and I will be lifted up. And you're like, hey, I wonder what that means. And he actually defines it. He says it's like a seed going into a ground and dying. <laughs> he's indicating that he's going to die by being lifted up. This is going to be the way that he shines. The ultimate flex of Jesus before a sinful world will be his crucifixion on the cross according to the plan of God. God is in full control of this thing. And at the same time, the sinful hands of men are at work. Pilate is guilty. The Jewish people are guilty. 
I've been reading this old uh, Puritan guy who um, sometimes makes my head hurt. He sometimes makes my heart happy. He made my heart happy this week. His name's John Flavel. He has this book on the, it's called The Fountain of Life, and it's, it's just about Jesus, and it's that thick. And probably about this thick into it, he makes this statement and explains this in a way I've never heard before. He's saying that God was ultimately in charge, but God uses instruments, and those instruments are accountable for their sin. Let this hurt your mind for a moment. He says, this foreknowledge and counsel of God, as it did no way necessitate or enforce them to it, talking about Pilate and the Jews, so neither does it excuse their fact from the least aggravation of its sinfulness. It did no more compel or force their wicked hands to do what they did than the mariner hoisting up his sails to take the wind to serve his design compels the wind. So think about it. He's like, just because a guy who sails a ship like throws the sail up to catch the wind to get himself to where he wants to go. Like he didn't force the wind to do what the wind does. He used the wind to accomplish his ultimate design. In a similar way, the winds of evil were blowing from these people's heart. God captures it to accomplish his ultimate greater will. This is concurrence. This is compatibilism. The two things are happening at the same time. Flavel continues, It cannot excuse their action from one circumstance of sin because God's end and manner of acting was one thing and their end and manner of acting was another. His most pure and holy, theirs most malicious and daringly wicked. You see the difference? It's the same act, the crucifixion of Jesus. They did it in hatred. Their motive was different. God was doing it to accomplish a high and holy purpose. He is glorified and they are shamed in their sin. And with this little talk on authority, Pilate has made his mind. He's made his mind. The most powerful man in that block at that time has made his mind, and look at verse 12 of what it says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. He's like, I'm, I'm convinced. It's an imperfect verb. From then on, Pilate kept trying to release him, kept trying to release him. We don't know exactly how long this trial took place, but time indicators will pour into the fact that this was hours long. So we don't know all the machinations that flow from this particular decision, and yet there was a final trump card that would be played by the Jews that will bend the powerful will of Pilate. Listen to what the Jews cry out in response in verse 12. If you release this man... You are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Oh, man. They did not want to have to play this card. Remember, when they first present the charge, it's like, he's a bad guy, he's a bad guy, just trust us, he's a bad guy. We, we, we ruled on him. Why didn't they just come out and say at first that he's king? They don't want to say that he's king. The people were already saying he's king. They don't want to give any validation to his kingship. So then, when they try to overcome Pilate's will the second time, what do they do? They're like, he broke one of our laws. He made himself the son of God. Well, that made Pilate even more concerned. You see the wrestling match is going back and forth, back and forth. Now they have to play the one card that they did not want to have to play. I mean, this thing is nuclear. It, it will tank their ambitions 
and they think it'll tank Pilate's. It's a problem for Pilate because, like, again, Pilate is politically on thin ice. Caesar at this time was a paranoid recluse living on the Isle of Capri. And at this point, he was responding savagely to unfaithfulness. Any, any, any instance of somebody tolerating rebellion was met with his heavy hand. In fact, one story actually tells that uh, when another procurator like Pilate had actually allowed a rebellion to persist, the message came from Rome to the procurator, you better kill yourself before you make the army do it. I mean, Pilate has this playing in his mind, but here's the Jews' problem. They don't want to acknowledge Roman rule. They're saying like, hey, this guy's a king. He's a threat to Rome. And now they're having to say that we're loyal to Rome. We want what's best for Rome. Everybody gets Here's the providential condemnation. This is where it all ends. Verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought out Jesus and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. It's not hard to get what's going on here. Pilate takes the official seat of judgment. We could, I prayed for the Supreme Court today. Not because of this. Well, maybe, it, I don't know. Maybe it just came to mind. But think of the Supreme Court for a moment. It takes them months, if not years, to come to certain rulings. I imagine that there's some kind of email correspondence. There's interpersonal conversations when they're trying to make a final decision. But when is the final decision pronounced? When they sit on the bench and read it out. Pilate has done the unofficial. He keeps saying, I find no guilt in him, I find no guilt in him, I find no guilt in him. There's, a, there's an interchange. At this point, after they throw that card, he's like, okay, I'm done. He takes his seat on the bench. And John gives us the historical like, insight into this moment, kind of like, uh, almost like the assassination of, of John Kennedy. There's a grassy knoll. It was on this particular street. It happened at this time. I mean, like he gets really specific really quick. He sits on the bema. It's the stone pavement that was, would have been known to many of them. And he even gives specifics of like the day. He says that it was the day of preparation for Passover. Now, technical note. Passover, when that word's being used, can refer to the day Passover or the week of Passover celebration, which included the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I've already explained to you why John particularly just uses Passover to refer to the week, just like we say, I go to my family's house at Christmas. We don't mean Christmas day, we mean Christmas time. He's saying it's the day of preparation before, during the Passover time, which makes it on our like weekly calendars, makes it Friday. Because the Sabbath was going to occur on a Saturday, Therefore, John is letting us know ahead of time that there was going to be a pretty quick crucifixion if they were going to actually crucify Jesus and get him down so that his body wasn't hanging on the Sabbath. Now keep this in mind, not only does he tell you the day, but he tells you the time. He says it was about noon. 
The sixth hour is what our translation says, but they counted from 6 o'clock a.m. to the middle of the day. Mark thinks that it was around 9 o'clock. The point is, friends, none of them were walking around with watches. I mean, it's not like you have a pocket sundial to break out. Mark is interested in letting us know that Jesus' crucifixion lasted a certain amount of time. John is particularly interested in letting you know that this trial lasted a really long time. It went from early morning to about noon. We're talking about six hours worth of back and forth. And now it's finally come to an end. He sits on the judgment seat. He makes his pronouncement. And what he puts here in this official imperial memo is what will stand for millennia. So where does he end up? Unstoppable force, immovable object, what is the final outcome? He takes his seat and he says to the Jews, Behold, your king. His final word is that this guy is a king. Remember, last time he said, Behold the man. He's doing this not because he really worships Jesus, but because he wants to get on their nerves. He wants it forever to be recorded in the annals of history that this guy was a Jewish king. I'll give you your crucifixion, but I'm going to crucify him as a king. He's doing this for himself. They win and lose too. They get their crucifixion, but now they have to deal with the fact that he's crucified as a king. Pilate even says to them in jest, like saying that, all right, here's your figurehead, here's your king, here's your ruler. They, they cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. You know, like they're just saying, just get rid of him. And Pilate rubs it in again, notice it. He says, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, the guy's in charge, because it's, it's an impossible situation. What are they going to say? No, don't crucify him, because he's a king. <laughs> Pilate baked it in. Remember I told you there was impossible questions? Like, have you stopped beating your wife yet? You can't answer that without unpacking some stuff. There's no yes or no right answer to this. Pilate now turns the tables on them and says, all right, shall I crucify your king? If they say yes, they're acknowledging him as king. If they say no, they're not getting the crucifixion. Pilate's no dummy. Notice what they say. They give away the farm. The chief priest, the oldest, most official, wisest, wealthiest, most powerful, they're the only ones who can speak up on this matter, and this is their final verdict. We have no king but Caesar. The Jewish people who for millennia had attested there is no king but Yahweh and his representative officially say in response, we have no king. But the Roman emperor. John told us this would happen. It says that he came into his own and his own received him not. The forces have met. And it seems like everybody's lost. Pilate has lost because he didn't want to see Jesus crucified. The Jews have lost because now it goes down in the official record of history that he's a king. And what about Jesus? 
it seems like he's lost because he's the one that will be crucified. And yet, we go back to chapter 18, verse 32, where we began. All this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He's the unstoppable force. He's the immovable object. Where it seems like if anybody loses, it's Jesus. He's ultimately the one who wins because his control as a king is being like confirmed in this moment. This is exactly how he said he was going to die. I mean, he's been working toward this. When they were looking for him in the garden, he stepped out and said, I'm the guy you're looking for. When the disciples tried to fight him, they said, no, don't fight. Like, this is what I'm here to do. Like, Jesus got what he wanted, but he also got what he wanted in being conveyed as a king. Here it is, an official pronouncement to the world that this is the promised ruler of Judaism. In fact, we'll see it next week. Pilate will write on the stylus above the cross, Jesus, King of the Jews, and he puts it in three languages so that the whole world will know. And the Jewish people try to say, no, 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 don't put that, don't put that. And he says, what I have written, I have written. Here this squeamish Pilate who's like trying to navigate these circumstances and seems to always be losing, now all of a sudden has this spine and this nerve and says, no, this is your king, crucified. All according to the plan of God from the very beginning of the world. If you were to go to the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, England, you see a whole treasure trove of objects of antiquity. Uh, one of the most interesting, just based on some of the research that I've done, is a particular hall full of statues of Roman emperors. So in it, you could see Tiberius and Augustus. And um, they're, they're beautiful. If you've ever seen artwork from that time, it's so detailed. And these statues are so larger than life. Like every time someone is, is conveyed and, and captured in one of these, it's like their muscles are chiseled, their demeanor is fixed, they normally have objects of power draped on their arms, you, you get the picture. But here's the most fascinating thing about that particular museum of Roman emperors. None of the statues were found in Rome. So that's weird. No, it makes perfect sense. They commissioned these statues and would place them in other parts of the empire so that the people would have a visual representation of what their ruler was like. They didn't have internet. Nobody was texting pics. Like this would be the one official representation of the one who ruled over them, who provided their protection, and the one to whom they paid taxes. And so these these artists would make these statues huge and they would make them beautiful and they would try to like make them dominant. They wanted that particular image of the emperor to be forever etched in the minds of the people. And here, 
in the condemnation of Jesus. God the Father etches out and sculpts the statue of His chosen King in the marble of human flesh. Forever depicted as one in control and one compassionate, dying in the place of those He came to save. O Fortuna, what wondrous fortune, what beautiful providence that this would be the statue that we always look to to see what our God is like. It's the turning point between creation and restoration. This is where like, the, the, the line of all eternity changes. It's at this moment, it's in the condemnation of Christ that, that God has shown up and He has positioned Himself as ruler but also redeemer. Think about it. He could have carved this statue out any way he wanted to. He could have made Jesus have this posh existence to be like better than Solomon, wealthier than Solomon, stronger than any other person. And yet, what did he do? He made him humble. He made him a man. He made him bloodied, beaten, bruised on our behalf. Like He actually carved this thing so that you would see this is what God is like. He suffers on behalf of His people. But don't just see the compassion. Don't just see the compassion. Catch this. Catch the control. This is what was promised from all of eternity. It wasn't like Jesus, as Schweitzer said, threw himself on the wheel of history and was crushed by it. But he is steering the ship straight to the crucifixion. He is in control even up to his very last breath. This is exactly what he was determining to do from eternity past. Crucifixion was no cosmic accident. It was the climax of his representation to a world. And I would ask you this in response, and we make this practical. What kind of God is that? If I were to see a statue of Caesar Augustus with ripped muscles, beautiful scepter, flowing robe, and garland representing rule, that would project one thing. I think I'd get a picture of what kind of ruler this is. And if I were to see a statue of someone who had been beaten, bloodied, bruised, shamed, weak, crown of thorns, rickety shawl over his shoulders, blood running down his chest, it would present something else. And yet here, we see the power and the providence of God all wrapped into one. What kind of God is this? I say this to those of you who are here who have yet to confess this Jesus as Lord. There's two groups of you likely. I say this kindly. I'm not trying to stereotype, but stereotypes are there for a reason. There's a rebellious group and there's a religious group. There's a group of rebellious here today who are like doing life your own way and you're just saying like I'm not even pretending to be religious like I follow me I do me I'm in charge of my life I'm fulfilling my life goals I'm going to hit my targets like you can't stop me you can't slow me down 
Uh, Listen, there's someone who is in control of it all, and I recommend that you relent of your self-rule and that you rely upon Him alone because this Jesus who suffered gives you just a small picture of the wrath that you deserve on account of your rebellion. If had to be paid for by human finite beings, it would take eternity in hell. You do not want to cross this ruler. Don't let that cross deceive you. He's in control. Come to Him. How's your life rule going? Most people that I talk to, it's just not working out the way they wanted it to. He's a better ruler. He's a kinder ruler. And then there's a second group, and that's the religious. That's those of you who think that you can somehow earn the merit of this God by contributing to or apart from what this king has done. Like, hey, I do good things. I give some money to people. I say my prayers at night. I show up at church a lot. My friends, you, he did it all. Like, this act that he would do, like, he would obey where you could not. He would die where, where you actually deserved condemnation. Like, the condemnation was, was yours, not his. And only he could actually pay that final sentence. None of your works he will receive. He only takes those who rely upon Him and Him alone. So come to this King. There's something beautiful, appealing, and good about our crucified Lord who would ultimately overcome death and invite all to salvation in Him. See Him. Here's the second and last. I say this to those of you who are already in Christ. Savor Him. Savor Him. There's something beautiful here. If you were a fan of the Roman Empire, I imagine the statue of a strong and mighty king would give you great confidence and security. We're in charge. When you look to the statue of Jesus, his crucifixion on the cross, his official condemnation by Pilate, there's two things that you can look at. For those of you who are the charge hard, go ahead, I'm trying to run my life, I've got stuff to do kind of people, you need to see the compassion of Jesus. For him, doing life well is cruciform. He suffers. He dies. He bleeds. Like, that's actually what he says good leadership looks like. Is dying to self. Like, he's he's actually said, follow me. Take up your cross. Follow me. It isn't just about getting things done. It's about laying your life down for the eternal good of others. See the compassion of Jesus at the cross. And for those of you who are more compassionate, you're tender, you're hurting, you're broken, and that is probably most of us, even when we are trying to control our lives, like it, it is a painful world in which we live, and we experience the pain on two levels. In part, outside of us, like stuff just happens. Like sickness happens, injustices happen. We're like, God, what are you doing And then we have these pains from within, these pains that we experience sometimes because of our own sin. And we're like, what is going on? Isn't it strange that when you look to the statue of our condemned king, that God accomplishes his greatest plan at the moment of the son's greatest suffering? Hear me well, friends. God's way of doing things, and I'm sorry to say this, but his way of doing things is through pain. 
Like he doesn't just like zap us with pleasure from one degree of glory to another. That's what it means to carry a cross. You endure pain, it causes you to examine your heart, it causes you to examine your motives, and God is working out something greater. Do you remember Genesis 50? Or 49, excuse me. Joseph's brothers had done all kinds of terrible things to him, and yet that was the way that God was working. And he says to them, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it for good. God is working in the pain. If he accomplished his greatest act through the pain of his son, how much more would he not accomplish his lesser acts through the pain of those who follow him? Beware, friends, of what Luther called a theology of glory, or what we call today the prosperity gospel movement, that would actually make you think that you're following Jesus in the right way when you're healthy, happy, and the world is going the way that you want it to. That is not the sign necessarily of God's blessing. We follow the theology of the cross. God is doing something in our brokenness, in our weakness, in our pain. That's how he's worked with his son. That's how he works with the co-heirs with his son as well. Don't look to just the glories of Jesus and forget about the ways that he has groaned to accomplish God's plan. This is our compassionate king, our controlling king. And I guess as we conclude, it would be best for us to spend some time beholding him, see him, savor him. Do that in prayer and song, and then we'll do the concluding parts of our service. Father, show us Jesus in a fresh way in our souls. <laughs> There's nothing here that says, do this, do that. It just shows us Christ. It shows us His control. It shows us His compassion dying in our place. We capture our hearts for those who have yet to come to Jesus, to confess Him as Lord. May today be the day. And for those who are trying to follow Jesus, but only in His glory and not in His weakness, Father, work in their hearts. May they see that they're not suffering alone, that this is the path that You have patterned for us. And may those who are hurting, those who are struggling, know that You're in control. You're overriding all the evil, all the pain, all the harm for their ultimate good and Your glory. Or be honored in our praise even now. In Jesus' name, amen.